Welcome to The Read Along, a mini book club for your ears. A proud member of the Alberta Podcast Network, powered by ATB. I'm your host, Scott. I'm your other host, Anita. And join us on a journey through a good book, one one chapter chapter at a time. Hosted by Andrew Paul and Elizabeth Bonkink and produced by Lisa Pruden, the Well Endowed podcast explores the impact of passionate people who are working to make Edmonton a strong, vibrant city to live in. The Edmonton Community Foundation helps people create endowment funds. The podcast tells the stories of how those endowments intersect with the community. You can subscribe right now at thewellendowedpodcast.com. So we finished a book. Last chapter was the final chapter of the municipalists. The ultimate chapter, if you will. The, literally. Yes. The ultimate chapter. And uh, That's so, why I said that. yeah, in, in a mere 14 weeks, <laughs> we motored through this novel t- from start to finish. During that time, there were some life developments <laughs> that uh, thankfully did not interfere with the uh, publication of the podcast. Not too much, anyway. But uh, full disclosure, we're both very tired. Yes. Um, our newest family edition has spent the last few nights mostly just being upset and gassy. And uh, so we haven't had much sleep. And if this episode is a little more incoherent than normal, uh, we apologize. <laughs> if we go off the rails, it is the sleep deprivation of parents of a new baby. Indeed. But fortunately, we don't have to do an analysis of a chapter. Instead, we are going to just dive right in and go full book club. We get all book clubby up in here. And take a look at the entire scope of The Municipalists by Seth Freed. A slightly further disclaimer, I am a little congested today, so if I sound funny, my apologies. Yeah, it's just, it, we're just a mess over here. <laughs> we should, legally speaking, we should not be recording pod. There are very strict <laughs> Alberta Podcast Network rules in place, uh, and yet here we are, illicit potting, because we care about you, our readers. None, more of, that, than, none of that is true. More than we care about going to pod jail. <laughs> I, I warned you this episode might be more incoherent than others. <laughs> my brain can't even wrap around a physical manifestation of pod jail. I don't even, I can't even, what even would that look like? <laughs> it would look like nothing. Anyway, so historically, I have been known to go uh, a little overboard with our full book club episodes. Yeah, they often get trimmed down. And yes. uh, some of the questions that Anita asks end up hitting the cutting room floor. Which is fair. Um, But in an attempt to keep Scott not busy for several hours worth of editing, I've tried to pare it down. So we won't be discussing things for three hours that you have to trim down to 30 minutes. We've never gone as long as three hours, but we've come pretty close to two before. Exactly. So here we go. Full book club. Have a sip of wine. Settle back. Grab your snacks. Here we go. Let's start by talking about our protagonists. Sure. And I want to start with Henry, because I think he has a really interesting arc that I would like to discuss. Thompson's character arc involves 
the breaking down and rebuilding of his ideals. That's part of it, certainly, yes. Yes. And what what I find is more common, normally when a character goes through that that style of arc, right? A, mm-hmm. a breakdown and a rebuild. It happens early to the character, the breakdown. And the story arc, like the character arc, is the rebuild, right? And I found Thompson's to be the reverse of that. Yes. He's having a slow breakdown to a rapid rebuild at the end. And I want to talk about that. Okay. Because I find it to be uh, less common. Well, I like that we got a lot of time in Thompson's head getting to know him as the person that he is prior to the events of this novel. Yeah, I love that his backstory is kind of interspersed, especially off the top. The prologue is a monologue of him delivering his worldview. And that worldview more or less holds until practically the very end. Yeah. Like I said, I find that very uncommon. Normally, a character, something happens early as like your inciting incident that breaks their worldview, and then they have to rebuild, right? I mean, that's part of the arc for him. But another part of the arc for him is about him coming out of his shell. And so Uh that's part of why he's thrust into the events of the novel. And so rather than his initial incident being him having this shattering realization and needing to uh, rebuild himself from the ground up, instead, his inciting incident is being pushed out of his comfort zone. Yeah, and it's a slow burn. And ultimately, that leads to the shattering of his worldview. Yep. But that's not the inciting incident for him. No, exactly. I just, I like that. I liked the slow burn of Thompson's breakdown as facilitated by Owen, usually. I would argue that it's not really facilitated by Owen. Owen, You don't think? Owen certainly tries to help Henry come out of his, like I said, coming out of his shell is part of his thing. And that's basically what Owen's motivation here is, is to get Thompson to loosen up. Um, But his worldview is ultimately not challenged by Owen. It's challenged by Kirkland. Oh, his worldview, yes. Um, But his uh, people skills. Yeah, but that's not, like, his ideals are not wrapped up in his ability to relate with people. No, they're not. But his people skills are part of his character arc. Oh, I absolutely. Would argue. Yeah. It's not a major part, but it's but it's there. And if you ask me, Owen is very challenging to one's people skills. Thompson is a man who, after the death of his parents and his disappearance into the foster system, and he, he spells this out in the first uh, chapter as well, he finds stability in bureaucracy. He finds the structure and the routine and the procedure to be very comforting. And he hides from his pain in that for much of his adult life up until up until now. And so the reason that he's not a people person is because he doesn't want to connect with people because the most important people in his life were lost to him. And then he was in a, a series of situations where people didn't connect with him. And so, but he, he found that he could connect to the underlying system. And so in a way, the system is his best friend up until Owen comes along. And it's weird to say, but that's true. No, exactly. Because exactly the system has always been there for him yep. and he's loyal to the system because of that. Yep. And Owen comes along and shakes up his 
his comfort zone by being another person, quote unquote, that he can connect with. And Owen's interesting because Owen is himself a system. Yes. So it's he's like halfway towards being a real person for him. Well, it's like I said earlier. I'm he's, surprised he's he a doesn't... starter friend. Exactly. I'm surprised <laughs> he doesn't get along better with Owen because Owen's not actually a person. Well, he is, but also he's, not. But he isn't. Sort of. Yeah. Like you said, he's a good starter friend, especially for Thompson. Yeah. But Thompson ultimately his loyalty to the system is broken when he realizes that the system is the system itself is broken. broken. Yeah. yeah. And, and that's, that's what the thrust of the story is leading him to, mm-hmm. as opposed to starting him off. in. Yeah, exactly. That's our, I don't want to call it the falling action, but that's kind of what it is. Right. If you follow the, the arc structure, the problem with making hand gestures is that no one can see what I'm doing. It's that is true. I can see what you're doing. Yeah. That's sort of his falling action, right? As he as he completes his character arc, right? He has this epiphany that the system is broken. Unfortunately, he doesn't let it radicalize him because that would make it a little cliche. Well, and also it would be a very disappointing end to the story. Yes. To a story that has shown radicalization to be bad. Yeah. Like we talked about this last chapter. Yeah. Um, It's also, in a way, like he's betrayed by the system. Like his loyalty was there and he thought that the system was doing something good because it had helped him. And when it turned out that he was actually kind of an outlier, it, that was devastating. So in a way it was that the system kind of betrayed him. And that's uh, why, that's why it was so shattering. Yeah. Kind of. Yeah. The, the problem with him relying on the system and the system being broken is that it then broke him. Yes. Right. That's why at the end of the novel, like when he gets the present of the train from Owen, which was heartfelt and well-meaning. Indeed. And he even like respects, wow, this is this is a rare and, and wonderful gift from someone who clearly understands me. But in this moment, I'm also introspective enough to realize I don't love this train. I loved my parents. And I was misplacing that in the train because I didn't want to face the fact that I missed my parents. Yeah, it took him his entire adult life to that point to realize that. Which is sad. Well, at least he got there. Yeah. Thompson in this novel is a very sad man. Yes, unfortunately. He doesn't know it, though. Yeah, we can see it, unfortunately, and Owen can definitely see it, because Owen is savvy enough to recognize that and is telling him to his face, you're a sad man and you need to cheer up. You need help, man. um, It's interesting because in the final chapter, when he... When he decides to reinstall Owen, he's the happiest he's been in this entire novel in that moment. Oh, I imagine him just wild-eyed and giddy yeah. about about to go on this crazy escapade to reinstall Owen. Yeah, like that is legitimately the happiest he is in this entire novel. Yeah. He is never happier. No, it's and true. it's And it's like the final paragraph of the final chapter, and it took the entire book for this very sad, stuffy career bureaucrat to reach that point. Yep, and I liked it. Okay, let's talk about Owen and his smaller but still present character arc. How uh, how the computer learned to people, if you will. Oh, the computer was already a better people person than Thompson was off at the beginning. Yes, <laughs> but I found Owen was a people person uh, only as far as his research told him. Yeah. Like he learned about people through psychology textbooks he as learned... opposed to learning about people by interacting with people. He learned about people literally in a lab. Yes. Because he's a computer. So it makes sense. 
but it still means his people skills were a little off because you can't really teach a computer intuition from a textbook. Well, and he was also paired up with quite probably the worst possible person to start to right? be his starter people. Yeah. Because Thompson is deeply broken. Well, so is... it seems like a good match for Thompson and maybe a less good match for Owen. Well, definitely considering Thompson then sells Owen out at the end of the novel. Right? Al. Yeah. If he had feelings, they would be hurt. Owen does have feelings. And they were hurt. And they were hurt. But yeah, Owen's Owen's character arc is uh like learning how learning how to friend. We we've, we've talked about that before too. But it, it, that's it. That's what he does. He learns he learns how to deal with people, specifically Thompson. But I think people in general from that. I think it's a it's a nice course for an AI. I kind of wish he'd had a little more development even because I think Owen's a fascinating and crazy character. My one issue with Owen in this novel is that he starts and ends the novel exactly the same. He doesn't really grow much. Well, a little bit. A very little bit. But at the end of the day, he's still the same Owen more or less at the end of the novel as he is at the beginning of the novel. And I mean, he's still the same Owen despite being technically dead at the end <laughs> of the novel. He still is the same Owen. And well, I don't know. I don't know if I agree with that. Because he's, he's learned how to be a friend to Henry. And I think that's something. If there were a sequel to this novel, and I don't know that there needs to be. I don't think there needs to be either. But if there but. were a sequel, I would like to see, I would like there to be more development for Owen. I think that would be a good trajectory for a, for a follow-up novel. Yeah, I can get behind that. Absolutely. So let's take a step back and look at, look, look at the work as a whole. I'm going to get all pretentious up in here and discuss it as the work. What do you think Seth Freed's overall message is with this book? I can think of a couple off the top of my head. What do you think is his, like, what's the moral of the story? The moral what of did the, you get? The moral of, of the story is that this, the systems that are in place to help people are fundamentally broken. <laughs> it's true. That's it? That's the whole moral? To tell I, people the system is broken? Everyone knows the system is broken. Yeah, but I think that this is an interesting novel because it uses the fiction to walk you through some of the systemic problems, if that makes sense. Yes. And without necessarily discounting those systems either, because Garrett's not wrong when he says that, yeah, okay, Usmus can only do X amount of good. Because it's hamstrung in so many ways. But we are still doing that X of good. And Kirkland is not necessarily right in his desire to just tear it all down and create a new idyllic society from the ashes. So it's interesting that Seth Freed isn't necessarily saying one view is right and one view is wrong. Agreed. He's saying both are both are flawed. I, I think our moral lies in... Owen's letter to Henry at the end. Oh, yeah. He pretty succinctly spells it all out. Like, look, the system is broken. So don't rely on the system. But you can still do good. I'm going to bring D&D &D into this right now. Oh, let's get all nerdy. Talk nerdy to me, darling. <laughs> I feel like there should be a drop there and we should, we should come up with like <laughs> a, gaming, a gaming thing. The sound of many dice rolling across the table. Yeah, we're going <laughs> to... We're gonna we're gonna stop for a for a tabletop drop. <laughs> it's a pleasure to meet you. So I'm going to ascribe some character 
alignments to Thompson and to Owen. Okay. And then I'm going to use that as a metaphor for what Owen's message is at the end of the novel. Okay. So in Dungeons and Dragons, if you've never played it, you're unfamiliar, there is a grid of nine alignments, which are lawful, neutral, and chaotic, depending on how much of a stickler for the rules you are and how much of a rebel you are. And then good, neutral, and evil, where... It depends on whether or not you're ultimately altruistic or very selfish. Yeah. If you look at it as a graph, the x-axis being lawful to chaotic and the y-axis being uh, good to evil. Yeah. With true neutral being in the middle, which yeah. means that you don't really care for anything. Yes. You're just all about that balance. Thompson tends towards lawful good. I would argue that he's maybe lawful neutral because he's mostly concerned with the rules and procedures and... Uh, systems, but he generally wants to do good. So I'd be willing to to put him up into lawful good. Okay. Owen is fairly chaotic neutral. He's mostly just a rebel. He's doing crazy stuff all the time. <laughs> he acts on a whim. He doesn't really think things through despite being a supercomputer. But again, I would say that he tends towards good. He wants to do well. Yeah. Okay. At the end of the novel, he's making a pitch for neutral good. Yeah. All right. Because neutral good is is entirely just concerned with the good. It doesn't care about bucking the systems. It doesn't care about the systems themselves. Its focus is on just doing good. and Not, his, not caring so much about how you get there. Exactly. And so he's arguing that, you know, the system is flawed. And when you're tied to the system, when you're tied to that lawful ethos, it limits how much good you can do because at some point you have to say, well, if I go any further than this, I'm breaking the rules. But he's also kind of making the argument that the chaotic way is not necessarily the best way either because then you're doing damage by doing away with the rules. He's saying, focus in. Don't necessarily look at the big picture. Just look at what good you can do in front of you right now. Do that good and then move on to the next thing. Yeah. And... Maybe that is the way it should work. Maybe. No, I, I like it. And maybe, it makes a lot of sense to me. Maybe that's kind of simplifying things too much. I don't know. I don't think I'm necessarily missing the point, though. No, I don't think you are at all. Again, we are very tired. <laughs> um, but, uh, but yeah, Owen's argument is very much... I don't think he's making an argument for chaos because, in a way, Kirkland and Sarah Laurie were advocating for chaos. They were saying, screw the rules, tear it all down. Um, Usmus, however, is all about the structure. It's all about the law. Owen's saying, maybe the right path is in between. Maybe yeah. it's the neutral there's, good path. There's there's a happy middle ground, yeah. right? No, I think you're right. Yeah. And I think you've explained it very well, though very nerdy. Indeed. All right. So let's let's get into the fun, juicy parts. What was your favorite bit? Um... There are a couple bits that kind of stand out. I think the I think the museum set piece is probably one of the highlights. That's what I was gonna say too. Uh, all like of the, the... the night at the museum, I think was my was my highlight of this novel. I really enjoyed reading that part. Oh, not necessarily just the night at the museum. The uh, I'm thinking the action set piece at the museum. With oh, the I'm including agents. that. Okay, fair enough. I think that that would definitely be uh, a highlight if this were to be the film of the book. Mm -hmm. You'd be you'd be building a big like act two climax <laughs> around that. Yeah. I think the but there's also some quiet moments that I think are pretty good. I think the scene at the restaurant with Sarah Laurie and Kirkland would be 
nice and quiet and intense. Your your dinner with the supervillain moment from the James Bond movie, <laughs> yeah. which we likened it to in, in mm-hmm. that episode. Um, yeah, there's there's some interesting stuff. I think the car chase would be really cool to see. Yeah. It was really... interesting to read, but I think it would be a much better visual. Agreed. Uh, I was particularly fond of, of Thompson's uh, badass turn when he goes to blow up uh, half of Kirkland's forces <laughs> and then tries to blow up the other half. I, I enjoy I enjoy a good heroic turn like that, and that's really what that felt like. Like his resolve to like, okay, even if I go down, I'm taking them with me. Again, I think that would have made an a, a, an amazing action set piece for for the movie of this book that does not exist. For the movie of the book. Yes, for the movie of the book. Okay, so let's go to the other side. What things would you tweak or change or cut or hated? I don't anything? think I, I don't think I hated anything in the book. Um. I was discussing this with someone a couple weeks ago. This book was interesting to me because there were a lot of narrative tropes that I was expecting it to subvert that it didn't, and then some that I wasn't expecting it to subvert that it did. And so it did, in fact, kind of keep me guessing a lot of the time because there were parts where I was like, I can see where this is going, and then it didn't go there, and I was like, oh. Okay. Wait a minute. Weird. Um, and then there were points where I was like, I'm not sure I know where this is going. And then it's like, okay, yeah, no, obviously that's where it was going. All right. So, yeah. It's, <laughs> once, it, once you landed, it felt good. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it definitely wasn't disappointing. I think the only criticism I have really is that I wish there was more character development for Owen, which we had already kind of touched on yeah, kind in of. this episode. Yeah. I would have tweaked a little, one little thing about Thompson. When when we got to the end and he had his his realization that he didn't actually love the trains, he loved his parents, I felt like we had discussed that at the beginning and then we discussed it at the end and in between we just sort of forgot about it. That trains come up. Yeah, I know, but it didn't it's it genuinely did seem like he was obsessed with trains as opposed to using the trains to mask his issues with losing his parents. Right, that didn't come through as strongly until the end, and I was like, "Oh, okay." I think I would have liked to have seen a little more, like a, a different way of expressing that through the book, that it was a little more obvious. That's the one that stood out to me the most. Fair enough. Because everything else felt pretty good. The action scenes were were entertaining and fun, and made fantastic visuals in my brain. Anyway, the villain I thought was a very good villain, because there's nothing better than a good villain that's sympathetic. I don't know that Kirkland is particularly sympathetic, and I don't know that Sarah Laurie is particularly sympathetic, actually. And I'm okay with that. Um, <laughs> Not sympathetic in that I felt bad for them, but sympathetic in that I understood where they were coming from. Yes. Right? Because they have, they have understandable goals and motivations that you can almost kind of sympathize with, but the two of them are not necessarily sympathetic. Fair enough. Um, what's, the, what's the saying? A good villain thinks he's the hero? Oh, and they absolutely think that no, they are super self-righteous. They are. If this book were being told from their point of view, they would be the good guys, quote unquote. And it would have a super downer ending. It really would. But yeah, they think they're right. Yeah. And that makes them good villains, or at the very least, good antagonists. Yes. To our protagonist. Oh, they're definitely villains, though. Make no mistake. They killed a lot of people. Uh, yes. Anyway. Yeah. So I wouldn't change anything about that because I I liked them. As a, as a villainous pair. All right. So it's time for the game. It's uh, time for your favorite game. <laughs> ah, my favorite game on this podcast. Cast that movie. Yeah! 
All right. We have uh, we have done some preparations. Yes. And uh, we have made our selections for whom we would cast in the movie of the book, The Municipalists by Seth Freed. So we have chosen uh, our our main five characters. Yeah. Because... I'm not casting extras. That takes too long. No, yeah, we're not. We're not casting literally every person in this movie. <laughs> uh, but Nita narrowed it down to casting Thompson, Owen, Kirkland, Sarah Laurie, and Garrett. Yeah, those are our, those are our top five build actors. I think. Indeed. If this were a movie, all right. So, do we who want to? to go, who wants to go first? Uh, sure. I'll I'll start. Okay. So obviously, we're we're going to start with our main character. Yes. Thompson. Yep. Um, I picture Thompson to be in his late 20s to early 30s. Okay. Um, old enough to be well-established at Usmus, but young enough to not necessarily have made a splash at okay. Usmus. He needs to be someone who can play a straight man, but also kind of goofy and awkward at the same time. Uh-huh. I have cast Alden Ehrenreich as Thompson. Alden Ehrenreich, of course, played Han Solo in the Solo movie. He played Hobie in Hail Caesar. One of Anita's favorite movies. I love that movie. Um, he's he's young. He's handsome, but like handsome in a way that he could be made to look very plain. Okay. Hobie is a great example of him playing very gormless, someone who means well, but is just hopelessly out of his depth. Yep. But still can have a big heroic turn at the end. And I think he would be well cast in the role. And okay. I think he I think he could pull it off. Okay. I went a little further up the age scale than you did. Okay. You I have imagine... a slight you have a slightly older Thompson in mind. I have an older Thompson in mind, but I agree with you that you need someone who can play the straight man very well, but also play uh opposite of that with the, you know, the giddy rebel at the end and the crazy heroic turn in the middle. And I have cast Will Farrell. Yeah, okay, I, I see it. I'm kind of picturing him in the movie Stranger Than Fiction. Where he plays the straight man Really, really, really well. He plays essentially. Like, he plays an accountant. Yeah. He plays Thompson. Yeah, in that movie, his character in that movie is uh, an IRS agent. Yeah, right. And he is very bland and very boring. And Will Ferrell plays it really, really well. He's really known for his comedy more than more than that. So that's why I think he could play the other side of it just as well. Okay. So you went first with Thompson. Let me go first with Owen. Sure. With Owen, you need someone who has really good chemistry and just the right chemistry mm-hmm. with uh, your Thompson. Yes. Right? And I, I kind of pictured uh, what, what I want out of Owen is a, is a modern Max Headroom. Yeah, okay. Uh, you're, you're not far off from what I was envisioning. Okay, good. And I think, I, I, wanted, I specifically wanted a comedian. Okay. Because Owen gets a little off the wall. I think I know where you're going with this. Zach Galifianakis. Okay. I think if you do it right. Okay, that's an interesting choice. Also, Zach I... Galifianakis looks absolutely nothing like Owen, in my mind. Yeah, but when you cast a movie, it doesn't have to look like that. Okay. And I think the chemistry between Farrell and Galifianakis would play really well. Well, they've done movies together before. Yes. So there was no, that I election mean... movie. That's true. Yeah. Which I've never seen. But in this particular story, I think their chemistry would play really well. Okay. I, I don't know that I would ever cast Zach Galifianakis as Owen. Owen, as he's described in the book, is has just devastatingly good looks. Like, artificially good looks. And when you were talking about, like, a modern Max Headroom, I was thinking, like, that artificially good-looking guy. Oh, okay. Piercing blue eyes. Someone who can play broadly comic and manic at times, like 
Zach Galifianakis. Right. But I went with Zach Efron. <laughs> okay. In Zach my head, Efron is a very good looking man. He very much and so. he can play broad comedy because he has. And he can play crazy. And he can play crazy. So I think that he would actually be pretty good in that role. And I think that he would bounce really fun off of whoever was playing Thompson. All right. Like just this like incredibly good looking guy in a suit with a with a glass of whiskey spilling over all the time. I think he could do it. I think no, it would be I, very funny. I that's not a bad pick. So one Zach or the other. Yeah, we both picked a Zach. We both picked a Zach. We just went with very different Zachs. Very different Zachs. <laughs> I I played more to the manic side of it, and you played more to the good-looking side of it. Well, Zach Efron can play manic. So what we need to do is merge these Zachs into one Uber Zach. No, that's a terrible idea. Agreed. That would be a monster. Okay. Kirkland, I'll go first. Okay. So Kirkland is described in the text as someone who's about six foot five. Uh-huh. He is at least in his 40s. Because he's a little over twice Sarah Laurie's age, is how he's specifically described. And she is 18 in the text? Yes. He's someone who's described as very imposing, a little dashing, maybe, with a goatee and an eye patch. I have cast Joel McHale <laughs> as Terrence Kirkland. Joel McHale is in his okay. 40s. He's, okay. he's exactly six foot five. And with a goatee and an eye patch and like brooding intensity, I think Joel McHale would be good in the role. Okay. Your Kirkland is very different from my Kirkland. Kirk, I, I see Joel McHale playing Kirkland very straight. Like, oh, no. Joel McHale, again, generally known as a comedic actor. Yeah. But in this case, he's playing very much a straight man. But he plays deadpan pretty well. He does. And Kirkland can do deadpan. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I kind of, I was thinking it's a little off the wall. And you'd, you'd want to make maybe Joel McHale, who's age appropriate for Kirkland, look a little older. Maybe put a little gray in that hair. Yeah. Maybe a little more lines in his face, but I think I think he could do it. In like he'd be due to height. Okay. He'd be he'd be very imposing in that scene at the restaurant. Probably. Yeah. Okay. I think it's funny that we also that the eye patch played into it. Okay. It in your casting as well because that was one of my criteria. Has to look okay in an eye patch. I've never seen Joel McHale in an eye patch, but I think he could. Pull you it can off. picture it. And again, I think this is fun because I went the other way with. Uh, Kirkland. My pairing of Kirkland and Sarah Laurie are like two people you would never imagine together. Okay. Right? And so my Kirkland, I tried to pick uh, someone who was very opposite of my Laurie, um, but still fit the physical manifestation of what his character was like in my head. Does that make sense? Yep. I cast Paul Giamatti. Paul Giamatti. I played a little bit with age because Giamatti's a little bit older than in real life than Kirkland would be in our story, but I think that's okay. Well, you've in your version you've literally aged everyone up. So. I have, it's true. It's just how it worked out in my head. Okay. And so then uh my opposite of that, the exact opposite that you would never expect to pair into it. And I am playing with looks here because she does not fit the physical description of Sarah Laurie in the book. Mm-hmm. But stylists can play with that. I have cast Zendaya. Zendaya. If you don't know Zendaya, she plays MJ in the new Marvel Spider-Man movies. Hold on. Let me justify my my. I'm going to let first. you justify yourself. Because Sarah Laurie needs to play the uh, bright-eyed darling and also the crazy radical. And I think she could do both of those. I I guarantee she could, but 
I am going to argue because Sarah Laurie's white privilege is baked into her character. Okay, fair enough. And with virtually any other character casting uh, a different uh, ethnicity wouldn't, I, ne I think, necessarily matter. matter. But Sarah Laurie in particular is white privilege. <laughs> and that's, that's true. We did talk about her ridiculous amount of privilege. Yeah, so it, it's hard... <sighs> It's hard for me to wrap my head around her being played by Zendaya exactly because of that reason and that reason alone. Okay. I think fair. Zendaya could do it. I think she'd be great, but I just don't know that she's right for that particular character. That's fair. I've cast someone different, obviously. Uh, obviously. Um, Sarah Laurie is described as 18 in the text, so I'd like to cast someone at least close to that age. Mm -hmm. Maybe a little Dawson casting, someone in their early 20s. Um, she's described as blonde, blue-eyed. She's the sweetheart of the city. I've cast Elle Fanning as Sarah Laurie. Anita's giving me a look because she's not up on her young actresses. It's true. I can't I can't picture a face. Uh Elle Fanning has been in quite a bit. She is the younger sister of actress Dakota Fanning, who is probably maybe a little more familiar to Anita. Yeah, I know who Dakota Fanning is. Yep. Um she's been in quite a bit. Most notably she played Princess Aurora in the Maleficent movies. So she's got that Disney princess good looks to her. Very she's good. blonde, she's blue eyed, she's great actress and i think that she would be good in the role and i think that she it would be very funny to pair her with joel McHale as well so <laughs> all right then yeah no i'm okay with it so i went i went in a very starkly different direction than you but well, that's you, because you 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 factored in looks more than i did and i factored in i think possibly character more than you did that's fair no, that's okay. But it, this is yeah. fantasy casting anyway. We're it's not true. actually making this movie, so no. it doesn't really matter. Though Hollywood, if you're listening, I mean, we, we'll make this movie for you. <laughs> Hire us as casting directors. We've got this. <laughs> All right, you get to go first with Garrett. You're correct. I do get to wrap this up. So Garrett is described in the text as someone in his late 60s, and that's literally it. He is someone, however, who has a little bit of gravitas and who delivers some monologues in the course of this novel. And I picked Michael Keaton for Ooh, Garrett. Michael I think Keaton. it's a I think it's a juicy bit part. I think an actor like Michael Keaton could dig his teeth into it really well. I think he's got the the look and the delivery that would work very well as Bossman Garrett, mm -hmm. someone who cares about his guy but is also like willing to give him a dressing down in the in <laughs> the final good. chapter. I think that uh, Michael Keaton would be a good choice for that. Okay. Now the problem with Garrett for me. Is that I have two actors tied for the role. Okay. Depending on how you want to play it. Well, I assume one of them is in his 80s at least because you've aged up the rest of the cast. Very funny. I agree with you for all of the characteristics of Garrett that you came up with. Um, except I've added one, which is because Thompson views him as a, kind of a father figure. Mm -hmm. You need someone who who you could imagine being fatherly, but who doesn't necessarily imagine himself being fatherly. Okay. Right? So I agree with the gravitas and whatever else it was that you said. All the things you said I agreed with. I just can't remember them now. I'm very tired. So we have a tie between uh, Ray Fiennes. Yeah, okay. And Lawrence Fishburne. Hmm. And Garrett would be a good choice for someone to uh, be cast as a black actor in this case. Lawrence Fishburne is an interesting choice, actually, one that I hadn't considered. Lawrence Fishburne uh, delivers gravitas very well, and he can he can drop a monologue. Yeah, that's that's solid casting. Especially choice, especially the like 
the sort of passionate one at the end about the system being broken, right? The one that he delivers to Thompson at the end. It's not on the edge of being angry. Yeah, it's a, that's solid casting. I, uh, I like my choice of Michael Keaton. My cast is I, very white, admittedly. <laughs> I like your choice of Michael Keaton. Uh, I didn't think of him. That's very good. But if, if you want to add a little more diversity into the cast, Lawrence Fishburne is an excellent choice, actually. Excellent. Sorry, Michael Keaton. I might actually pick Lawrence Fishburne over you in this case. <laughs> we'll find another juicy role for you in a future Absolutely. podcast, 100%. obviously. I am I am waiting for the ultimate role for Jason Isaacs to come along so I can just cast him as every character. I'm surprised you haven't. Just like, uh, Owen, I love me Jason, Jason Isaacs. Isaacs. <laughs> He's so fabulous. So there we go. That's our casting and cast that movie. That's it. That's the end. Uh, and with that, we, uh, we draw to the close of the municipalists. And uh, that means that it is time to pick up a new novel. New so book that, time! So that we can uh, get right back into it next week. And it's got, uh, it's got fresh book smell on it. Even. Yeah. So uh, we put out a Twitter poll to determine what genre we would be doing next. And we didn't add science fiction because our last two novels were kind of sci-fi-y. Yeah. Time for a change. We added in Nita's choice as a joke. <laughs> and Never it, do that. And it won. So Nita got to pick the genre of our next novel. And she decided to pick something that we have not done before. Not quite a mystery. Not quite a horror. I picked a thriller. All Beth has to do is drive her son to his football game, watch him play, and then return home. Just because she knows her ex-best friend lives near the field doesn't mean she has to drive past her house and try to catch a glimpse of her. Why would Beth do that and risk dredging up painful memories? She hasn't seen Flora for 12 years. She doesn't want to see her today or ever again, but she can't resist. She parks outside the open gates of Noonham House and watches from across the road as Flora arrives and calls to her children, Thomas and Emily, who get out of the car, except there's something terribly wrong. Flora looks the same, only older. Twelve years ago, Thomas and Emily were five and three. Today, they look precisely as they did then. They are no taller, no different from when Beth last saw them. They are Thomas and Emily without a doubt. Beth heard Flora call them by their names, but why haven't they grown? How is it possible that they are still the same two perfect little children Beth knew more than a decade ago? Our next novel for the read-along is Perfect Little Children by Sophie Hanna. It sounds fun. It's uh, definitely a different genre than yep. uh, than we've done before. We're changing it up, but uh, it should be a an exciting read I by so. by a best selling crime author. Yeah. So uh, we'll uh, we'll get a little bit into Sophie Hannah at the beginning of next episode. We'll discuss a little bit about her, and then we'll just be diving right into chapter one of uh, Perfect Little Children in time for next week. Yeah, and this was a Twitter poll. So if it's horrible, you brought this on yourselves, everybody. It's, it's true. <laughs> um, it won't be horrible. Yeah, and uh, Perfect Little Children should be readily available wherever books are sold, both yep. on or offline, and you've got a little bit of time to grab that. It's, it's a new release, so it should be available pretty much everywhere. Yeah, and as you prepare to delve into our next novel, you might also be interested in checking out some of the other podcasts here at the Alberta Podcast Network, many of them award-winning. Not all of them are award-winning, including our own, but like our own, that doesn't mean that they aren't excellent podcasts nonetheless. True. Such as the following. Hi, y'all. This is Ryan from the Eat More Barbecue Podcast. I'm just a guy that loves slow-smoked southern barbecue. I love eating it, I love cooking it, and I really love talking about it. 
I want to help grow the barbecue culture here in Alberta. This podcast is a great way for me to share the stories of the people involved in the barbecue community, like restaurant operators and competitive barbecue cooks. Along the way, I also visit with other folks like farmers, distilleries, breweries, and anything of interest to barbecue people. A new episode comes out every Wednesday wherever you listen to podcasts. Keep on smoking, folks. So it's about barbecue. Yeah. Eat How more, can it be bad? Eat more barbecue. Everyone should eat more barbecue. Barbecue is delicious. Unless you're an ethical vegan. No judgment. No judgment. No judgment. Uh, you can... I like barbecue. Check out Eat More Barbecue right now at the uh, Alberta Podcast website. That's albertapodcastnetwork.com. That's right. Uh, you can check it out on the CKUA app if you just want to maybe get a little taste of it without necessarily subscribing yet. Yep. Uh, and if you do want to subscribe... I mean, it and all the other Alberta Podcast Network podcasts are available pretty much wherever fine podcasts can be found. Really, podcatcher of your choice. Yeah. Wherever you listen. While you're at that podcatcher, maybe uh, give us a little rating and a review. We'd appreciate it. Did you like reading The Municipalists along with us? Have you enjoyed reading other novels along with us? Are you looking forward to a thriller? Yeah. Now's the time to finally pull the trigger on that review. Maybe five stars. It, uh, if you think we're worth it. it. It helps our visibility and it helps our podcast to grow. So we, we do definitely appreciate it. Absolutely. You can uh, also check us out online. Yeah, we have the standard collection of social medias. Pick your poison. Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, uh, and Goodreads because we're bookish that way. Yeah, we're at the read along at pretty much all of the above. Yeah, if that's not enough characters for you. Uh, you can send us an email. TheReadalong at gmail.com. Scott will still check it. I always do. He's very good at that. And with that said, as always, we'll see you next time. Mm, fresh books. Thank you for joining us on The Read Along with your hosts, Anita and Scott Bourgeois, a proud member of the Alberta Podcast Network, powered by ATB. All Read Along music is by Kevin McLeod at Incompetech.com. Cover art is by Aaron Beaver. Be sure to join us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at The Read Along, and check out our group on Goodreads.com.